Master Hakuin's chant and praise of Zazen. From the very beginning all beings are Buddha. Like water and ice, without water no ice, outside us no Buddhas. How near the truth, yet how far we seek. Like one in water crying, I thirst. Like a child of rich birth, wandering poor on this earth, we endlessly circle the six worlds. The cause of our sorrow is ego delusion. From dark path to dark path, we've wandered in darkness. How can we be free from birth and death? The gateway of freedom is Zazen Samadhi. Beyond exaltation, beyond all our praises, the pure Mahayana. Upholding the precepts, repentance and giving, the countless good deeds and the way of right living all come from Zazen. Thus one true Samadhi extinguishes evils. It purifies karma, dissolving obstructions. Then where are the dark paths to lead us astray? The pure lotus land is not far away. Hearing this truth, heart humble and grateful, to praise and embrace it, to practice its wisdom, brings unending blessings, brings mountains of merit. And when we turn inward and prove our true nature, that true self is no self, our own self is no self, we go beyond ego and pass clever words. Then the gate to the oneness of cause and effect is thrown open. Not two and not three, straight ahead runs the way. Our form now being no form, and going and returning we never leave home. Our thought now being no thought, our dancing and songs are the voice of the Dharma. How vast is the heaven of boundless samadhi! How bright and transparent the moonlight of wisdom! What is there outside us? What is that we lack? Nirvana is openly shown to our eyes. This earth where we stand is the pure lotus land, and this very body, the body of Buddha. Today is day four of our five-day hybrid session. It's the 8th of June, 2021, and we're going to continue to read from and comment on An Experience of Enlightenment by Flora Courtois. This next chapter that we're going to start with is uh, entitled Arrival. And it describes the many profound changes that Flora Courtois experienced when, as she put it, the universe changed on its axis for her. I have to say, I have some trepidation in reading this chapter because the description of it can be misunderstood and even misused. I'm sure, yes, Satani Roshi asked Flora Courtois to write down her experience because he wanted us to be inspired to take up our own search for the truth. He wanted to strengthen our faith um, in the possibility of waking up to this marvellous reality that is right under our noses. But especially, I'm guessing, he thought that we could be particularly encouraged by this account being from 
a Western woman with little or no knowledge of Zen. But our, our egos being what they are, uh, we can take this story and turn it into an object of our craving, this description of, of what is, uh, enlightened life is like. Uh, we turn it into a thing, um, and this certainly isn't, isn't new, um, our, our, our deluded behaviour is hardly ever that original. Uh, it's something that is addressed or dealt with in, in um, many of the koans, turning awakening into an object and yet to not talk about it is also problematic. As I said many many koans deal with this with this topic but there are two that um, particularly spring to mind and they're um, both in the Mumonkan uh, right next to each other because they're very similar and um, one of them is, is, the first one is called Shuzan's staff. Shuzan held up his staff before, before his assembled disciples and said, You monks, if you call this staff, you are committed to the name. If you don't call it a staff, you ignore the fact. Tell me, you monks, what will you call it? A staff here, of course, is, is a um, metaphor for awakening, enlightened mind. If you, if you label it enlightenment, then it's very easy to become attached to that. So that object. But if you don't call it by its, its name, then you're ignoring a, a central part of human experience. Basho goes a bit further and when he does, talks about his staff, he says um, again to his assembled disciples, if you have a staff, I will give you one. If you have no staff, I will take it away from you. If you if you if you think you have something you're something special, I'll give it to you. Immediately you, you turn something to a thing, then you then arising with it is have and have not. And exactly this, like we can we can do with an account like this, um, we compare ourselves to Flora Courtois and we we conceptualize our, ourselves as being without what she has. We find ourselves wanting, telling ourselves we 
can't do it because we just are not up to it. And so um, we let ourselves off the hook, or we seem to at least. We don't really. Because once we, once we have become aware of the, this possibility, this possibility of human unfolding, then we, we really can't ignore it. It's too compelling. Another mistake we can make is to latch onto the details of a story and imagine that we must somehow go through that exact same process. Not seeing that everyone's process is different. That we can see archetypal patterns within the spiritual path, spiritual journey, but each of us has to walk our own path in our own way. So with, with those caveats, um, we can read, go ahead and read this chapter and hopefully be inspired and th then throw away the story and get back to this moment. So as people will recall, um, we left Flora Courtois sitting in her bedroom in her parents' house, um, sitting on the edge of her bed and gazing at a small desk. The small, pale green desk at which I'd been so thoughtlessly gazing had totally and radically changed. It appeared now with a clarity a depth of three-dimensionality, a freshness I had never imagined possible. At the same time, in a way that is utterly indescribable, all my questions and doubts were gone as effortlessly as chaff in the wind. I knew everything and all at once, yet not in the sense that I had ever known anything before. I think here of um, what Jung said, we do not solve our problems, we outgrow them. All things were the same in my little bedroom, yet totally changed. Still sitting in wonder on the edge of my narrow bed, one of the first things I realized was that the focus of my sight seemed to have changed. It had sharpened to an infinitely small point which moved ceaselessly in paths totally free of the old accustomed ones, as if flowing from a new source. People's uh, awakenings um, often are um, centered around one or other of the, the sense gates, the sense doors. And for uh, Flora Courtois, it was the visual field that, that seemed particularly changed for her. 
in the in the sutras. I think it's especially I think it's the Surangama Sutra. There's a whole series of um, descriptions of um, different bodhisattvas and their awakenings through different uh, sense organs. For instance, for Kanon Avalokiteshvara, it's through hearing. Or um, another one is there are the 18 bodhisattvas who enter a bath and awaken through the sense of, of um, touch, the, the feeling of the water as they go into the bath. Um, Flora Courtois also seems to be describing here um, one-pointedness, where, where one's attention coalesces at a, at a single point. What on earth had happened? So released from all tension, so ecstatically light did I feel. I seemed to float down the hall to the bathroom to look at my face in the mottled mirror over the sink. The pupil of, pupils of my eyes were dark, dilated and brimming with mirth. With, with a wondrous relief, I began to laugh as I'd never laughed before, from the soles of my feet upward. Sometimes, and not always, insights are accompanied by laughter. Think in the, the story of um, Kohen Yamada in The Three Pillars of Zen. He laughs so loudly in the night that he wakes up his family after his his opening. Within a few days I had returned to Ann Arbor and there over a period of many months there took place a ripening, a deepening and unfolding of this experience which filled me with wonder and gratitude at every moment. The foundations had fallen from my world I had plunged into a numinous openness which had obliterated all fixed distinctions, including that of within and without. A presence had absorbed the universe, including myself, and to this I surrendered in absolute confidence. Often, without any particular direction in mind, I found myself outside running along the street in joyous abandon. Sometimes when alone, I simply danced as freely as I did as a child. The whole world seemed to have reversed itself, to have turned outside in. Activity flowed simply and effortlessly, and to my amazement, seemingly without thought. Instead of following my old sequence of learning, thinking, planning, then acting, action had taken precedence, and whatever was learned was surprisingly incidental. Yet nothing ever seemed to go out of bounds. There was no alternation between self-control and letting go, but rather a perfect rightness and spontaneity, spontaneity to all this flowing activity. It really had a thoroughgoing transformation of her psyche. 
This new kind of knowing was so pure and unadorned, so delicate, that nothing in the language of my past could express it. Neither sense nor feeling nor imagination contained it, yet all were contained in it. In some indefinable way, I knew with absolute certainty the changeless unity and harmony and change of the universe and the inseparability of all seeming opposites. She seems to have gone from, from intellectual comprehension of things to a visceral one. It was as if, before all this occurred, I had been a fixed point inside my head looking out at a world out there, a separate and comparatively flat world. The periphery of awareness had now come to light, yet neither fixed periphery nor centre existed as such. A paradoxical quality seemed to permeate all, existent, permeate all existence. Feeling myself centred as never before, at the same time I knew the whole universe to be centred at every point. And uh, cosmology actually confirms this. Wherever you are in the universe, you are at the centre of its expansion in, in all directions. Having plunged into the centre of emptiness, having lost all purposefulness in the old sense, I had never felt so one-pointed, so clear and decisive. Freed from separateness, feeling one with the universe, everything, including myself, had become at once unique and equal. If God was the word for this presence in which I was absorbed, then everything was either holy or nothing. No distinction was possible. All was meaningful, complete as it was. Each bird, bud, midge, mole, atom, crystal, of total importance in itself. As in the notes of a great symphony, nothing was large or small, nothing of more or less importance to the whole. I now saw that wholeness and holiness are one. I'll be skipping forward a little bit here. Years before, I had sought a rule that would apply to everything I did, even to washing dishes. Now, I simply wash the dishes. In the most simple of bodily feelings and the most ordinary of daily tasks, living was transformed. I had never felt so completely whole and in one piece, or enjoyed my bodily feelings so much. Breathing had changed, had become deeper, more rhythmical, Eyes, hands, voice, all seemed quieter, more relaxed. With seemingly boundless energy, every task became effortless and light. Running exuberantly home from classes or work, bounding up two flights of stairs to my third floor rooming house room, I would fall soundly asleep for a quick daytime catnap, then waken shortly, feeling wonderfully refreshed. With spontaneous gusto, I found myself eating lightly whenever hungry, gaining ten much-needed pounds in a few months. Even my handwriting changed. As for my relations with others, another person now filled my shoes. 
Laughter and delight seemed to fill my life. Somehow I had become more human, more ordinary, more friendly and at ease with all kinds of people. Apparently I appeared happy and smiling too, for strangers often came up and spoke to me. I had no idea what I could have done to deserve these miraculous changes. But I felt the most inexpressible gratitude for them. They had enriched my life beyond compare. Literally, everything had become more interesting. As for my schoolwork, it improved in some areas and declined in others. I was less concerned with meeting conventional demands. She could be herself. Fully. She mentions here her gratitude, and this is this is one of the, the hallmarks, we could say, of uh, spiritual maturity. But of all the changes that had occurred, the one that most seemed to me in some mysterious way to be the key to everything else was the change in vision. It was as if some inner eye, some ancient centre of awareness, which extended equally and at once in all directions without limit, and which had been there all along, had been restored. This inner vision seemed to be anchored in infinity in a way that was detached from immediate sight, and yet at the same time had a profound effect on sight. Walking along the street, I was aware of the street flowing past and beneath me, the trees or buildings moving past all around, and the sky moving above as if I were immersed in one flowing whole. There's, um, there's a, one of the, the koans which is, um, expresses something similar. It goes, I, as I stand on a bridge, the bridge flows, the water does not. A childlike, unknowing, pervaded perception. The immediate world had acquired a new depth and clarity of colour and form, an unalloyed freshness and unexpectedness. Rooted in the present, every moment opened to eternity. Along with this, there was a sharp single-pointedness to the focus of attention which caused me to feel that I was looking straight and deeply into whatever entered my attention. Yet paradoxically, I felt blind. This is difficult to describe. It was as if my attention were now rooted in some deeper centre so that my everyday sight, my eyes, released from their former tension to reach out and see the world outside, were now free, as if they had been blanked out, eliminated altogether. Again, uh, she's reflecting here something that appears in the Zen teachings. And the enlightened ones are often f referred to as being blind, because they're no longer caught up in uh, dualistic distinctions. Unknowing or not knowing is also um, a, an aspect of insight. 
and it's not something we can we can just manufacture, but that that comes out of our search. Here's Mark Twain again. Some things you can't find out, but you will never know you can't by guessing and supposing. No, you have to be patient and go on experimenting until you find out that you can't find out. We have to be willing to come up against the mystery of our existence. We, we often so want to know. We want to be able to grasp things. Because, of course, if we can grasp them, we can perhaps exercise more control. And so, because we want so much to know, we miss the all the gifts that come from not knowing, from a certain type of blindness. She says, my eyes released from their former tension to reach out and see the world outside were now free as, they have, as if they had been blanked out, eliminated altogether. In the sutras it talks about closing the sense doors or, or stopping leaking from the sense doors. This way in which we use our senses that is uh, reaching out to what we think are objects outside of us. And it's, it's, uh, it's draining. Another incidental change I noticed was that no matter in what direction I looked, no shadow of my nose or face ever appeared in the clear field of sight as apparently it had occasionally done before. I also found other people's eyes fascinating, as well as those of animals, looking into them as if into my own. This change of vision was so impressive that I went to the university school library and searched in the card files under the headings of vision, sight and eyes, trying to find some reference to this new kind of vision. There was nothing, not a clue. Still, I remain convinced that this change in vision was somehow basic to all the other transformation cha transforming changes. So here she's beginning what would become uh, a search that spread over, over decades of trying to find, uh, find a context in which she could, could place the powerful experience that she had had. Somewhere she, she felt that she would, would find some kind of explanation for what she had gone through. What I called open vision not only awakened appreciation for the inexhaustible delights of everyday living, the smell of smoking damp leaves, the taste of fresh Michigan apple, the sounds of the thrush in the early morning. It had also made me more aware of the sufferings of others, 
so much of it self-inflicted. Knowing that it was perhaps impossible, I still longed to tell others something that would help them open their vision as mine had been. My first attempt was with my friend Suzanne, a piano student. To her I said something like this, Sue, there is a way to know the universe and yourself as one whole, all at once. If you can do that, you won't have to strain so to learn. It will come naturally. We talked frequently until I realised I was not really communicating this to her at all. This, this urge to share one's experience is also a part of uh, awakening. And it's, it was very painful for Flora Courtois that she did not find anyone in her circle that she could, could uh, rec um, communicate with. She was doing a general science class at the time as she was going through this in these early years after the awakening experience and um, she says that she recklessly decided to try to put down on paper in the language of science what she felt she'd discovered through her change of vision. She says the paper was entitled One Law. It was another unsuccessful attempt. My professor commented that he had no idea what I was talking about. How inadequate words were to even suggest this experience to anyone else. What seemed to be the most marvellous and significant of experiences seemed hardly of passing interest to others. I came to feel that to talk about this personal experience was to expose to shallow interpretation and disrespect what was most worthy of respect. I decided then never to speak of it again until I was confident that it would be appreciated. And according to uh, Tiny Roche's introduction, she, she did not speak of it to anybody until she met him. It's something we discover, I think, when we, we take up Dharma practice as well, that um, we have to take care um, how and with whom we talk about uh, the Dharma. Autumn came to Ann Arbor, bringing with it a carnival of colours and sparkling air. Wandering in the fields and along wooded paths, sometimes lying on a grassy bank looking up at the stars in the evening, I felt completely at home. In an indefinable way, I felt the presence of others who understood, and I felt confident that so long as I lived with open vision, everything else would somehow be right and just as it had always been attended. So it came about that the changes described here so strange and incredible at first, gradually came to seem quite natural.
There's another point that is made in the in the Zen texts and in, in the koans that after all, awakening is very ordinary, very simple. The next chapter is headed Loss and Return. For the next year and a half or two, I lived each day with joyful awareness. It never occurred to me think, to think of myself as in any way enlightened. This is, this is a lot, these effects of this experience are long lasting. Then still I had never heard such terms as enlightenment, satori or religious experience. If I had heard of Buddhism at all, it was simply as an obscure oriental religion. So she was, she didn't, at this point, um, think of herself as enlightened or anything else because she still had no terms with which to identify what she had experienced. By now, uh, she'd married, she was working in Detroit, and uh, she came across a, a book called the Bates Method of Sight Without Glasses, and um, she was struck by some of the terminology he used and thought perhaps she could find out more about what had happened to her by talking to this Dr. Bates. And she, she actually made a, a trip to New York to meet him, but had, he had in the meantime um, passed away. and. She talked at length to her, to his widow, um, but the the long and expensive trip again yielded no no um, new insights into what had happened to her. She returned to Detroit and. Um, found herself becoming more and more dissatisfied with her job um, in a business uh, and so decided that perhaps she'd be able to deepen her the experience she'd had and find a way to bring it to others, which she longed to do, by becoming a psychologist. So she enrolled in a university and and started studying psychology. Here, one day, seemingly by accident, I picked up a copy of William James's Varieties of Religious Experience, and with a shock of recognition, read for the first time descriptions of the kind of experience I had had. This led me directly to the literature of the Orient. When I read the Tao Te Ching, and soon after my first Buddhist sutra, Tears filled my eyes. They struck such a familiar chord. The sutras seemed to speak with unveiled clarity. Mandalas fascinated me. I wondered if anyone living had had such an experience as mine or if mine was some kind of anachronism. She and her family moved to California 
and um, she at some point, point after that discovered her first book on Zen and then went on to read the, the works of, of mystics, Western, Western mystics such as Meister Eckhart and John of the Cross, William Brake. In about 1950, I took a course in comparative religion from a Buddhist scholar at a nearby university. At this same professor's home, on several occasions, I met a writer of popular books on Zen Buddhism. I listened in rapt attention as these, as these learned men talked at great length about Buddhism, yet no mention of practice of any kind was ever made. Um, I have written in, in the margin, and I don't know where this came from, but um, apparently this um, scholar that she met was Alan Wallace, who of course did not mention practice in his, his books, books that did inspire many people to practice, however. It must have been about this time that I began to feel a subtle pride in knowing firsthand what these authorities apparently knew only in theory. I began to think of myself as someone who had had an experience of enlightenment and was therefore secretly special. Like one with an old sickness that had lain dormant for many years, I developed a new kind of egotism, more pernicious than ever before, because it was accompanied by a sense of possessing special and superior knowledge. This is um, having the staff in the versions of in terms of those koans we were looking at. I have a staff. Basho says, if, I, if you have a staff, I will give you one. And it's also just an example of this, this uh, way in which uh, the ego can appropriate anything to its ends. And how, and how knowledge is a double-edged sword. She finally um, completed her psychology degree and um, Mostly the kinds of things that were acceptable there were not the study of, of um, religious or mystical experience, but um, more to do with uh, measuring and testing. She was able to um, do a little bit of work in this area, area, area but did not get a, a positive reaction from her her supervisors or teachers. She says, finally I became interested in a subject which seemed related to the opening of inner vision, that is, to, to changes in perception during states of deep relaxation. Since one of the clearest recollections from my own experience was of the wonderful release of all feeling of tension. 
At graduation time, the head of the psychology department encouraged me to go on to graduate school at a nearby university to develop this interest in the course of studying for a PhD. This I did, and for the next few years, I became immersed in a high-pressure graduate school machine. The compulsion to be scientific seemed to narrow and constrict everyone's perspective, leading us to an obsessive concern with counting and measuring. No orthodox church was ever more rigidly, rigidly doctrinaire. The necessity to regurgitate quantities of busy work to earn good grades made original work virtually impossible. In over 20 graduate courses, I made what seemed to, be the to, seemed to the faculty to be an impressive record of A grades for what seemed to me to be a mediocre quality of performance. Since no one shared my unconventional interest in the effect of deep relaxation on perception, the only way to pursue this interest was on my own. This I did also studying during these years physics, biology, mathematics and Western philosophy as well as working actively as a psychologist in several clinics. She describes how the other students that she was um, studying with just seemed eager to get out of the situation as quickly as they could along with um, their uh, diplomas and she says, a portfolio of formulas to apply to future patients. As for those unfortunate and troubled people, the patients on whom we practiced at the university clinic, however exhaustively we tested them, somehow they belonged in none of our categories. How often I wondered if the more psychotic of these patients might have lost their way in searching for a deeper, truer perception of reality than that perceived by a possibly miseducated therapist. She became more, she, more and more conflicted about her work. On the one hand, the, the university atmosphere and on the other side, the sense of, of, of wandering further and further off course. She says, to the extent that I had become academically successful, I had become in a deeper sense unwise, unintelligent, unfree and unliving, unloving. This busy life was suddenly interrupted by the necessity for some major surgery and a prolonged convalescence. Lying quietly alone, I realised I had lost my way in the midst of all this diversity. All the knowledge I had accumulated in those years could not be compared to that which I had learned in one measureless moment long before. Every formal subject led to the same abyss. So she decides against advice received from various quarters um, to terminate her studies at that point for a lesser degree and to go back to a um, more ordinary life at home, spending more time with her family and reading and writing, helping her husband with his business, working as a volunteer. But in those intellectually busy years, I had built no inner bulwark against a deep despair that I often began to feel in the early 60s. I grieved that the priceless opportunity I had been given in my youth 
somehow had been dissipated and wasted. All my efforts to communicate what seemed most important to me had failed. Never once had I found the way to pass it on directly to anyone else, not even to my family. There seemed to be no one to whom I could even speak of this. I longed for guidance, at once religious and practical. I also longed to be the member, a member of a truly religious community. When, for one reason or another, I attended one of our community's churches, all I seemed to find was an organized effort to protect and distract people from the awesome struggle and dangers of transformation. She lived with this sense of despair for um, several years. She describes it as being like um, John of the Cross's dark night of the soul. On the surface, things looked successful enough, happy enough, but she felt at the same time that she had somehow failed on the deepest level to live every day out of her experience. My only hope lay in my confidence that what was lost was here all the time and beyond time, nearer than I knew. I realized finally that to continue to indulge in regret was also a subtle form of egotism. The enemy was this very suffering separate self. Just as I had done years before, I began to sit alone in quiet concentration. But my life was a busier one, more preoccupied with family duties. I sat less intensively and more intermittently than in my youth. For some time, I sat occasionally alone. Later, learning of a group of people who sat regularly together in meditation, I joined them. And then, um, sometime a couple of years after that, she, she hears that a Zen center has been started in Los Angeles. And she comes back, finally, to a community where um, she feels at home. Sitting in the Zendo, listening to Mayazumi Roshi read from the ancient texts, I felt my exile was over. I had returned home at last. I now know that to have had in any measure an enlightenment experience is only a beginning. Even to speak of having, having had it is to risk losing it. Immediately is surely everything. To be re-enlightened at every moment, forever, requires eternal vigilance. How can it be otherwise? To continue to practice such awareness at every moment is implicit to the very nature of enlightenment. Thus, practice is reality. Reality, practice. This was the indispensable pillar that had been missing from my life. Now, like a slowly rising tide, quietly, less dramatically, the timeless vision returns, the infinite possibilities for joyful awareness open at every moment. To this, I now vow to give all my attention. And may we too vow to give this all of our attention. We'll stop here and recite the four vows. All beings without number, I vow to liberate 
Endless blind passions I vow to uproot Dharma gates beyond measure I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha I vow to attain all beings without number I vow to liberate endless blind passions. I vow to uproot dharma gates beyond measure. I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha. I vow to attain all beings without number. I vow to liberate endless blind passions. I vow to uproot dharma gates beyond measure. I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha. I vow to attain.